Welcome to Roots and Ruminants, your podcast for creative and innovative use of farm, pasture, and rangeland. We're going back to the basics of raising and grazing livestock, growing your own forage, and practical land use. All right, thanks for joining us for another episode of Roots and Ruminants. Today, we are joined by Racy Padilla. He is the Small Grains Research Director for TriCal Forages. And pleased to have him on here. So Justin and I actually both had a chance to run into Racy a few weeks ago at the Legacy Agri Partners kickoff in Rochester, Minnesota. And so quick fun fact about that. I drove, uh, went to Rochester, uh, cool downtown, the Kaler, the Kaler Grand, right? Hotel, is that the hotel we were at? Yeah, yeah, yeah. super grand. Super grand, yeah, it was a cool <laughs> place. Uh, parking ramp was built for like 1950s did your pickup get in i didn't get it in racy did you drive a pickup did you get in there no no they they picked me up at the oh at the airport and and they dropped me off at the front door so i didn't have to deal with that i drove my pickup in there you did yeah my antenna hit every single uh beam concrete beam and i was just half done clinched uh yep just a half ton i took the three-quarter ton oh yeah you're not not fitting diesel no well they got it in i made them like valet it like it was silly but i made them I don't know what to do. Yeah. I drove around a long time looking a, for a parking spot that wasn't in a parking ramp and that doesn't exist. And then I think, I think this is accurate. There's more parking ramps uh, within three blocks of that Rochester hotel than there is in the entire state of South. Carolina. Oh, I guarantee you that's yeah. true. Like that's a fact. No question. Yeah. No, very rarely do I consider how this vehicle is going to park when I like, <laughs> take off on a trip from South Dakota. But anyway, that was uh, another uh, that and meeting Racy were the memorable, uh, <laughs> <laughs> some of the memorable things from our trip to Rochester. So, hey, welcome and thanks for joining us, Racy. You bet. Glad to be here. Do you want to give your introduction, Racy, where you're at uh, as far as geography in the United States and, and what you do? Sure, sure. Um, I, I'm actually at a research station. Our main research station for our whole company is based in Vernon, Texas. Um, it was originally the uh, AgriPro uh, research station. AgriPro owned this company for oh several years. I think 2008 um, is when they uh, acquired the uh, the Triticale program um, some years back. But uh, this was the original program. This building was actually built in 1999 um, by the previous breeder, and uh, when he was going to go in and start a wheat breeding program uh, for the Southern Great Plains, uh, and he came from. Uh, Basically, he came from a university background, and him and another guy went in and wanted to start a private company. So they built this building uh, for him. Um, basically, it was built down here for the purposes of drought tolerance and uh, disease screening and, and, and high heat tolerance for wheat varieties. So um, that's where we're located. Uh, as far as the, the tri-cal group goes, we're a pretty pretty small group. There's only like nine, nine of us in the whole company, which includes salespeople. But uh we do a lot of testing across the U.S. I actually have uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of like 26 states that we test in every year. Um, so uh, w- we put all those things together, you know, in the fall, planting mostly, and then uh, kind of w- we start up north when the when the September planting date is kind of a crucial time to get small grains in and, and work our way south. And we end it basically getting done in December, um, finally getting to maybe get a little chance to see our family at Christmas time. And uh, and then we kind of start all over on the breeding side. Um, but uh, we do have, you know, Legacy has got an office up in uh, Wapaka, uh, Wisconsin. And I think here in the future, we're going to probably see some uh, some interaction, some cohesion between that group. So uh, 
we're doing a lot more testing up in that area, just trying to trying to develop and uh, and find varieties that fit that that type of market. Okay, so the small grains that you're working on, what are they? What crop types? So ninety percent of our program is triticale. Um, this program, like I said, was owned by Syngenta, and then in 2015 we ended up selling. The, uh, or we're getting sold out to uh, a small company called Northern Agribrands. And then again, changing hands again last year in, in July, uh, now on my legacy. And so since our 90, 90% of our program being uh, triticale, and uh, we do look at other crops, I do have some uh, forage wheats, um, dual purpose type wheats basically and then uh, i do work with a little bit of barley and austrian winter pea it's kind of a side project not a not a huge main focus if i get a little extra time to work on them i work on them if um, but really our whole focus with tricale is forage forage based and uh, that's where triticale really comes into play for us is it's it's a uh, it was a pretty mature program that just kind of needed a little bit of a, a vitamin shot in the arm um to to really move it forward and to help improve the crop. So triticale is our main, main crop that we work on predominantly. How old were you when you told your parents that you wanted to be a triticale breeder, like nine or 10? Like, <laughs> <laughs> how'd you get in this very specific yeah. niche role? Yeah, it's, it's a funny story. Cause I actually started out and uh, actually when I went to college, you know, I think ever some freshmen go through this, but, you think you know how you're going to set up the rest of your life and i wasn't real sure i actually grew up uh, rodeoing and uh, i went to rodeo for a uh, for southwestern oklahoma state university and at that time um the only experience i knew was uh was i had a, a you know a couple of people that were family friends who were in the medical field so i thought i was going to be in the medical field and then i as i kind of got to learning and and, and going through the process of uh, interacting with people and so on and so forth. I thought, man, this is really not what I want to do. I have such a passion for farming and ranching my whole life. I've been around it working for farmers and ranchers. So I, I've got to get refocused here and, and kind of figure out how I'm going to do that, do that for a living. Um, so I actually changed my degree to agronomy degree. Um, I guess that was my sophomore, into my sophomore year. And I just, I just kind of went, you know, through the whole, trying trying to figure out where i'm going to be in life and i uh i actually got into uh with a professor that said man you have an inquisitive mind hmm. you need to uh you really need to go into some kind of research field the way that you evaluate and really try to pick things apart and figure out how they function so on and so forth and i said okay that sounds great so i got my agronomy degree thinking i was going to get into uh get into a research program really quickly um, when I graduated, it, it didn't happen. It was until I went to and found an, an opening for Texas A&M. Okay. And I took my first research job in Texas A&M. Was there a couple of years, and just there was so much going on with the research that, that we did. We did multiple crops, peanuts, uh, canola. There was a big uh, Chevron project that we did for uh, uh, for oil seeds and uh, biofuels and so on and so forth. But I never really felt like I had a uh, an expertise in anything at that point. I, I couldn't become a, an expert in anything because we were just constantly working on so many different crops. So uh, I found a job opportunity with Syngenta, actually just right around the corner in a wheat breeding program and and uh, took it. 
after my first year, I, I was like, man, this breeding thing is, this is cool. This is a lot like animal breeding in my mind, you know, over the years working for ranchers, breeding yeah. cattle and so on and so forth. It was, it was more of a fit to work of kind of how my brain worked. Yeah. And then over time, uh, you know, a couple of years, uh, the breeder came to me and said, man, we have an opportunity. We need, we need new breeders. Everybody in the system seems to be elderly and, uh, they're going to phase out and retire. And we're going to be left with a bunch of breeding programs with nobody run them. So Syngenta started these, uh, train the breeder programs. And basically they sent me back to, uh, get my graduate degrees, um, and plant breeding. And, uh, they, they took real good care of me. And then I just kind of, Kind of worked my way on in 2015 when we sold out to Northern. That was when we had a uh, had a major change, and and they said, well, we need an additional breeder to take on uh, the Triticale spring uh, spring Triticale program in California. And if if you want the program, it's all yours, and you get to say grace over it and make all the decisions. So then it kind of went from there. You know, here I am. Um, yeah, I that was several years later, and worked my way to the top. So I think I think a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with what triticale is, but you mean tricotale? Well, you can pronounce. We it get a lot of calls for different ways. Yeah, do you have any of that tricotale? Yeah, say Yes to all of them. Uh-huh. Yeah, we yeah. got that one. I get a I get a lot of triticale, triticale, and I think triticale comes from our, us being a really good at branding our product, tricale. So oh. they get really. I think they get real confused about tricale, triticale, and they and they throw sense. in they just call it triticale, but it's triticale, which is you know the uh, the the genus mixing basically the gene uh, genus of triticomacetivum, which is wheat, and then oh, uh, they should have just called it that. Yeah, <laughs> triticomacetivum. Yeah, <laughs> and then cicale, which is the uh, the, the genus of uh, of rye, and just basically crammed them together in one cool word to call it triticale. And when was that developed? What year? Sure. Uh, so there's, there's, there's a little bit of a extensive history. I mean, the first cross triticale was made back in like the 1870s. Um, and, uh, it was actually done by a scientist that, uh, that made, made the official cross and then found out that it actually, the, the seed that you actually produced off of it was was uh, infertile seed, so you couldn't reproduce it efficiently every year. Um, and then, you know, the, it seemed like it got kind of put down, you know, set down. And then, in like in nineteen or sorry, eighteen eighty-eight, there was a German breeder, uh, Rumpal. I'm assuming I'm saying his name right, but uh, he made the first official cross to that uh, was actually stable and. Uh, and figured out that you had to actually double the chromosomes, uh, uh-huh. you know, to uh, to make it a viable crop. Kind of like a mule. So, yeah. But yeah. then, so it's right, you know, essentially the infertile, right? Jerry yeah, mule, sure. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. No mules. But are. then you can't make more mules unless you make the same cross again. Right. But then this guy came along and he's like, "Nope, we can do this. Maybe some guy should do that. Make a fertile mule." Have you ever tried that as a breeder? Yeah, no. I've never tried that. They actually, there actually is a uh, there's an equine breeder in Texas that that actually uh, did produce a fertile uh, mule by oh, really? um, doing some cloning work. It's, I was that's say, a little sure. Yeah, that's a little 
that's a little frowned upon in certain aspects, but he he basically did it just to prove he could. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Oh, so uh, second generation. So how do we get to that second generation cross? Like or what you described there, how do you get this first generation cross between rye and wheat into sure, first sure. cross, second cross? And what is the, when someone's buying a, a bag of seed, a, a trikel variety from a distributor, what is it? It's a second cross? No, it's actually uh so I'll, I'll kind of finish up the history and I'll oh, kind sorry. of explain yeah. it. Yeah. No, no, that's fine. So, it, it, so like around the, like around the forties, that's when they started making the, uh, uh, they started actually make, well, let's see, let's go back to, you know, the early twenties and thirties, they actually figured out that you, you had to make the cross with bread wheat, which is what we're all familiar with as, uh, as when we, when we just talk about wheat, bread wheat, uh, which has the, uh, the a b and the d genome and crossing that to rye and they figured out basically you had to treat that uh, cross with colchicine so basically it was a process you go in there and you make the pollination you rescue the embryo you treat it with colchicine which colchicine is a chemical product that uh, basically uh, stops the chromosomes segregation within the uh, keeps the chromosome from splitting and getting uh, basically doubling the chromosome count or, or the uh, the haplotype. So okay. you're stabilizing the DNA at that point where it can't go to uh, the infertility side of it. So after uh, after they did that, most of those traits were called octoploids, and and they were really nasty looking, terrible looking traits. They were really tall and leggy like rye, and then think of a the crappiest wheat head you've ever seen. That's what it was. And then here comes this uh, uh, another person, o- Omara, in uh, in the in the 50s, and decided, well, let's just try uh, let's try doing it with durum wheat, which is a, a tetraploid. So they tried it with durum wheat and uh, and crossed it. Had to do the same thing, colchicine treatment, etc. And that's where you become up with hexaploid wheat, which is what we use as of today. And those first crosses are called primaries, and the primaries again, just what you think of, they're 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 kind of nasty looking things. You got to go through all these uh, top crosses and selections and so on and so forth to get something viable out of them. And that's essentially how we've gotten to where we are now. Is a lot of years of my predecessors working through those primaries. Essentially, triticale is a self fertile just like wheat is um, of the current products that we use. That, that makes a lot more sense. And I think mm-hmm. it is worth noting that uh, so people that have planted rye and used quite a bit of rye in the past will, will look at that and say, okay, what's the advantage or you know, why should they make the upgrade to triticale? It's like, well, there's a very good chance that the, the Ryman rye that you know, you're using, I don't know when Ryman came out, but this is a, this is a, a variety of rye that's been out for decades and decades. There's not a lot of active U.S., you know, rye breeding programs. Uh, there is some from other countries coming in, but your program is very deliberate and making a lot of genetic progress and advancement every single year, every, every generation that you're going about. So it's a, it's a little bit different. It's, it's a little bit of an apples to orange to say, okay, this is the price of a, a bushel of cereal rye. And then here is a bag of, of, of triticale. There's a lot more that goes into it. Yes, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. We, you know, that's when I talk about where we've, we gave it a shot in the arm. Basically, it was a, it, it was kind of a 
the breeding program was kind of a uh, an afterthought. You know, if we can have time, we'll work on it. Um, but when we actually we actually took it and really really picked it up and, and started focusing strictly on triticale, and said, okay, we're gonna we're gonna put money into this and we're gonna to make the improvements. And and what are the improvements that we need? If we can't if we can't improve uh, the agronomics and the and have everything over rye, then what's the point of us working on triticale? So, uh, so when we really start looking at it, there's a lot of things that we improved, you know, was, uh, uh, looking at feed quality. That was a main, that was one of the major things we wanted to improve, um, biomass production, um, uh, winter hardness was always an issue. Um, and it really winter hardness comes back to, because there was, there were so many hexaploid trits that came out of that Durham crossing and Durham's are mostly, you know, that's a, desert durham there's a that's a, it's, it's in the in the explanation desert durhams are really uh, grown in the desert areas of the u.s so they don't need winter hardiness so we had to really improve upon those those three major things uh were probably the main focus and, and we went full steam ahead with all three of them all at once do you ever come back and, and breed a triticale line back to a rye line to improve hardiness winter hardiness Toughness, yeah, yeah uh, so you don't. It's not as easy as just making a rye cross back to Triticale. What what I have done is uh, I have kind of a side project within our program where I am trying to improve rye um, just enough. I'm not real focused on the commercial side of it, trying to improve rye to you know to to go into the commercial market, but improve rye with uh, with the current genetics and makeup and an adaptation because you know. The, environment's changing um and i'm if i can improve improve the rye that i can work with to make new crosses to durham's and basically recreate primaries um that's what i'm going to move forward with to to increase the gene pool um because there's so few people working on triticale the genetic pool is not real wide and vast the only way to keep the wide gene pool is to improve triticale by maybe going back to primaries and then i also do some uh straight wheat bread wheat type uh crosses to triticale and i get a few uh segmentations of dna inserted uh, from bread wheats back into into triticale to improve the genetic makeup that's going to be a that's probably going to take me the rest of my career to make that process happen just because it's such a very long uh struggle to uh, work with primaries and recreate them so everything in the marketplace now that comes from tricale is a true um first check first second primary secondary but it's a true 50 50 cross between wheat and rye correct yes yes it's a true breeding line it breeds through yes Mm -hmm. So I don't have to go make anything really cool. Uh, don't have to do culture scene, anything like that. It's a simple cross-pollination, no different than you do with wheat. Okay. Triticale is, uh, there's probably some that gets combined and, and milled maybe for specialty reasons, but it's primarily 100% of your breeding is designed around forage, I'm assuming, or not? Yes. Yeah. Yes. No, absolutely. We have a, we have a few side projects. You know, people approach us with from other companies that – they're looking to find other small grains, yeah. uh, specifically in the bread making world, that can maybe, you know, to bring something something cool to the market. But a lot of a lot of those are pretty niche, niche type things that are that are not uh, 
there's not a lot of money being put into it, but we do kind of help along the process. When well, we, the bread when they ask us to come in there. The bread companies has just been trying to outdo themselves on the number of grains. It used to be you'd have like white or wheat bread, and then it was like, oh, five grain bread, and then it was like, oh, we've got an eight grain <laughs> bread, and like, oh, it was eleven grains. So they're literally gonna have to start making up new grains to get to like the full twenty-seven grain bread, you know, yeah. premium product. Yeah. So they probably maybe doesn't bring anything truly unique that the rye or the wheat, you know, wouldn't flour wouldn't have to the bread, but they can add a number to the number of grains in the bread if they use trit. Sure. Yep. Maybe that's a selling point. Yep. See, the problem with triticale as a bread product is uh, the glutenins, which are, is what makes bread rise. That you okay. get the rise for bread, making uh, loaves of bread. And the glutenins are really weak in the, uh, or apps, some, some are completely absent certain varieties. Um, and so you you can't make it makes good flatbread. You can make tortillas mm. and crackers and other things uh, that don't take a lot of uh, strong lieutenants uh, with with uh, triticale. But we do have a project with uh, with with a uh, uh, couple of universities where they're actually we do have certain varieties on our backgrounds that have stronger lieutenants, and they're actually making bread triticale bread. It's like seventy percent of the actual flour in the mix is triticale. Okay, and a triticale tortilla sounds pretty good. Yeah, there you go. Does it does it ever lost on you that like we took two grain crops and then made a forage out of it? Like, you know, we took wheat, durum wheat, you know, and and rye, which rye can be a forage too for sure. But you know, a grain crop, and then we made something that's exclusively a forage in the middle of it. I never thought of that. Yeah, yeah, that. It's a. Uh, it's not. It's forage, especially in the grass side, is is always a. It's secondary or tertiary, yeah. right? To, you, you know, they're always yeah. looking for improving grain products, and you look at. Uh, you look at even barley's. Uh, when when you hear people talk about feed barley's that they're feeding in, into feed mixes, those barley's were part of a a malting barley program. But they're like, well, they're not good enough for malting. But hey, look, they put on a ton of forage. Let's just try to put that one in a different market and that's what i do every day is really look for the forage side of it not so much the grain product so and i think i asked you about this when uh out in rochester but i was thinking about as you were talking about making these new crosses and bringing the new germplasm back in i got thinking about that one of my favorite stories of of breeding plant animal whatever breeding of all time is the is the norman borlaug orville vogel story where orville vogel has this envelope of seeds that he got from like the post-world war ii reconstruction in japan and like they're the only like native type or natural dwarf gene wheat that's in existence and and norman gets this envelope and the first crop fails and he has like 12 of these seeds left over in this envelope of the only stuff that he knows to exist uses that grows it in a greenhouse crossed it with a sonora red the rust resistant wheat that he was doing and then boom it's like 96 percent of commercial wheat has that so but durham does not have that dwarf gene in it does it or did the gene the dwarf gene get over in the durham um as well or not yeah, I'm. I'm trying to remember. There's RHT genes in, in wheat, and that's what he's work was working with. And, okay. Uh, um, I'm pretty sure RHT genes are on the. Uh, I don't. I didn't look much into those, but they are. They might be in the uh, A genome or the B genome one, and that's actually Durham. Um, okay. So, yeah, but I mean, but you're not. Do you feel like you're hindered as we've as we've made 
wheat with a shorter, stronger stalk? I mean, there's probably certain wheats that you you know varieties that you don't use, but is there is there a hindrance you think to the like the height, the restriction in height that we've put into wheat over the last seventy years for harvestability? Has that impeded your your breeding efforts as you're making these new primaries? Uh, no. Uh, what I've actually done for on the, our our breeding side is kind of done a, you know a little bit from the playbook of of Norman Borlaug is we're trying to uh, develop shorter statured uh, triticales. Uh, most of our main lines that really made the company kind of get off. You know, get off to start and become a viable seed company where really tall, leggy, late lines and a, a lot of similarities to rye. But what I found out is if I actually shorten the internodes, you know, the the distance between each leaf, um, I can potentially select for a shorter internode and add leaf area, mm-hmm. which increases leaf to stem ra- uh, stem ratios, which increases and digestibility which increases digestibility and raises better quality. On top of that, if I'll add a, a higher tillering number of stems um, at the same time, then I can, I have essentially taken a crop that was, you know, 48 inches tall, brought it down to 36 inches, and I'm getting more yield out of that 36 inch material because I've changed the architecture of everything so much. Um, Okay. It, it's it, it it's it's uh it's not to say the really tall ones. You know, everybody thinks height to height. If you see a really tall one, that's got to be the height yielder. But uh, it's really not when you start looking at if you change a lot of other uh, uh, spectrums of the overall plant architecture. Mm-hmm. And straw tr- strength's a really big deal for everybody now, especially looking at the double cropping guys. They they want it to stand up so they don't have to. Uh, they don't have to go when they go in there to harvest it. They don't have to go and and run their swather or their chopper two separate ways to pick it all up or oh, put yeah. it twice. It you know, some of the older stuff was like that. So when we started talking about crosses and different genetics, uh, my mind raced to why can't we cross certain like uh, let's take teff grass for example. Why can't we cross teff grass with uh, an oat so that it's more uh, adaptable to be planted earlier and we get a bigger seed size that's more vigorous to grow, but then it regrows like teff grass. How come we can't do that? Yeah. Why can't we do that? Can we do that? Yeah. Uh, uh, a lot of that's got to do with uh, you, you just can't make a, an inter, some of those are not intergeneric. So like they're, they don't belong in the same uh a group of genetics that you can actually make intercrossing to. Um, a, a dirty word here is with uh, uh, you can actually do some of that stuff with uh, transgenic type things and force those things around and make crosses with them. But be, because it's it's there's not a lot of value in it, they're not going to put a lot of money into it. And plus, if it's even close to even being something that's going to be humanly consumed they're not going to work on it uh, from a transgenic standpoint so um but a lot of it's just got to do you just can't get those species to match up uh, genetically they, they just don't have the right coatings in their dna to to make the match got it and to, to be honest with you i don't know how anybody in 1870 something said hmm, let's put these two together and find a crop <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah you know, i 
You, I've got all all this breeding knowledge, and I, there's a lot. Of, I don't know that I would have done it, you know, in the first place. It just took somebody that tried it. When you're actually pollinating that first the primary to make the primary, are you manipulating the pollen right into the you know? In which way do you go? Do you go uh, wheat to rye or rye to wheat? Yeah, use the use the the uh, the wheat as the female. So you would uh, because they're a perfect flower. They have they have both male and female uh, parts within the same on the same plant, right? So you basically use the durum as the female side, um, and you pluck the anthers out. The anthers are the actual. the actual part that carries the male pollen or the gamete and you take those out and then you introduce the rye as the pollinator. It's really cause the wheat's a little more stable on the, and on the genetic side. And it's probably the, the biggest volume of the genetics. You want the cytoplasm to come from wheat because you probably want, you want more of that genome um, to express itself. Okay. And so, so you're hand pollinating those to make those primaries. Right? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And what and I, is, hand, I hand pollinate everything in my greenhouse where I make crosses every year too. Okay, uh, what, is there a a loss in uh, fertilization rate from that that cross? I mean, is it hey you know you'd have ninety nine percent grain fill if it was just rye on rye, but you go to the rye onto the wheat, it's like oh it's seventy percent. Like it doesn't like to cross with itself. I think as long as you have small hands, it's okay. percentage is good. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really got to do with prop. It's it's more got to do with the st- stability of the ovary. Um, yeah, it, to, the long way around your question is yes. Um, the stability of the ovary and the and the amount of pollen that comes off of rye is significant, so you can kind of uh, have your success. The receptivity window of of uh, of wheat's really short versus. Uh, rye but the rye pollination the sheer amount of pollen you get from there makes it just there's a lot of physical things it just makes it easier that's so funny and it like and go ahead go ahead ahead. no i didn't know like you know like i have no scientific background on how to read this i was like all right if you're gonna make triticale which one would be the boy which one would be the girl Right. You know, like, yeah. and it's like, oh, the rye, like rank, <laughs> masculine, brutish, you know, robust. And you're just like, like you said, massive, just so pollen. much pollen, just so much pollen and big pollen too, if I'm right. Yeah. 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 Anyway, sorry to interrupt. The, the tall one with the longest beard, that's the one you make the male. Yeah. yeah okay. There you go. Makes sense. <laughs> well, I mean, like, look yeah. at, look at the features on a, you know, a sheep and a ram versus a, you know, yeah, a ewe. Sure. It's totally different, right? Yeah. That's what it looks like when you compare wheat to rye. Okay. Anyway, now, uh, the 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 real answer is somebody already figured out ahead of me that that was the best way to okay. make the cross. <laughs> um, you know, in small grains, when we make when we think about making crosses, uh, if you take let's say you take variety A and variety B, and you want to make a cross, you want to make something out of that. Which one do you make the female? For the most part, in the Unless you're looking for specific genes, for the most part, when you make a cereal cross, um, it doesn't matter whether A was used with female or A with B. Or sorry, A was used as a female or A was used as the male. Those are called reciprocal costs. So if you used to do that again, make take the A as a female, B as a male, make that cross, and then you get that progeny off of that line. And then take the B, make that a female, and use A as the pollinator. 
you've got two separate progeny, but when you put them out in the field side by side, they phenotypically look the same, and they'll probably carry a little bit of, uh, you know, most of the same genes in there. Let's go to the side of improving genetics for feed quality. So for all of our livestock listeners, why does it make sense to feed triticale? And, and, and maybe we should go down the line of talking about tricale and the varieties that you've improved for better quality and yield and why it matters to a livestock feeder. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So we always take, I always talk about, we had to take a step back and, and reevaluate. Um, and this actually was put in motion before me, but we, uh, when you look at the program and how they were trying to head with the program and then the way I picked up and, and kind of approved upon it is we know we're always, you're in certain areas, we're going to compete with wheat just because wheat's king. You know, if you look uh, west of the Mississippi and, and you look in the plain states, you've got, you've got to compete with wheat if you're going to work in that system. Uh, so our improvement was it's got to be as good as, as uh, basically it's got to be as good a quality as wheat. But the yield's got to be significantly better. And I think we did that really quickly and really fast with uh, some heavy selection. But the quality side of it's not as easy to make the, the quick and rapid changes with. And then when you look in other parts of the U.S., it's quality over tonnage. Um, but I still have to have, you know, the same tonnage as rye. But as long as I can have a uh, more uh, forgiving crop, as in uh, maturity and and the uh, and and the rate at which it loses quality over the season, then I can always compete with rye from that standpoint. Mm-hmm. And a good example is um, rye is always going to probably out. It's it's going to most of the rye on the market is earlier maturing than than all the trits we have commercialized. Mm-hmm. But we developed a an early variety called 154 Gainer. Actually, is the sorry is the marketing name, and. Uh, I'm a breeder, so I'm always thinking back in numbers of what it used to be called. <laughs> but uh, the market name's Gainer, and it's probably earliest winter, true winter tree kit that's ever been on the market, um, probably ever. Um, so we released that one, and the idea was to try to find something that was as early maturing as rye to fit in a double cropping system. And then when you really look at the uh, components from uh, from a quality standpoint, we actually saw major improvements in that one with starch. Um, you know, li- uh, lignification was significantly less than than uh, rye, and so on and so forth. So we start developing gene pools of which ones have uh, those types of uh, contributions on the quality side, and and kind of put those together in small groups and say, this is our high quality group. Let's use these to cross to you know line b that's it's a heck of a yielder and has good winter harvest etc but maybe subpar on the quality side um no different than you know breeding animals you know you try to but you try to find the pieces you like between the two and, and try to make the you know the the end product that you want but as we looked at managing uh, rye when rye starts moving past flag leaf stage it really starts to lignify quick and uh, it tends to get uh, a lot of uh a lot of stem and the leaf, and it starts losing leaves really, really significantly at those stages. Um, and then you'll see triticale, the state green value on on uh, rye is not as good, and 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 that's one of the components I look for is how long does that crop stay green from the bottom of the plant to the top of the plant? 
um, throughout, you know, the maturity windows that we're looking for. And what I noticed was if I could select one with a good stay green um, at that, let's move a, let's move in and say late boot stage. So when the head is just trying to emerge out of the flag leaf, at that stage, I still had really high quality with good tonnage. Where at that stage with rye, half of the plant was yellow on the bottom mm. uh, and becoming uh, starting to senesce uh, and and starting to lose its quality. Not not by the day, but by the hour at that point. So we, we really looked at trying to developing the stay green and, and how we could help that select varieties that would that hold together for longer. And a lot of that had to do with our customers telling us, you know, like, hey, we, we get the quality. I'm on board with that. But what happens if I get a rain today and a rain tomorrow and it's five days before I get in the field? In five days, is that plant going to be, you know, is that basically going to be straw? And I'm like, well, no, that's why we've started selecting for varieties. They could hold everything together Bigger harvest for a longer window. period of time. Yeah. So you get some forgiveness. Yeah. Well, so we haven't talked about this yet. One of my favorite traits uh, that you introduced into some triticale varieties is the unleaded, essentially the pulled gene of the triticale breeding world. Pulled right? triticale. Pulled. Explain yep. how that came about and what it looks like and what – a big advantage for a lot of uh, beef cow-calf guys that – again, uh, tend to harvest a little bit later on everything. It's alfalfa, if it's grass, say whatever. We tend to harvest a little later on almost everything because tonnage is usually the big, the, the biggest driver, not feed quality like a dairy would be, or even a feed yard somewhat. So a lot of times we're at full head or you know we're past the boot stage that heads out there. Uh, what does an onleted trit do for us? Sure. We actually have truly onless triticales now also. Um, okay. So the clarification, I don't, I get, I say the term on and on Lennon and I, and I, I realized that it's the old school terms are bearded and beardless. So I sometimes need to clarify that. So the on, the on is the beard. Uh-huh. Um, so we basically classify our trits in three different on or beard links. Um, onless is, non-existent like the uh, the on doesn't uh, doesn't elongate at all so it's truly beardless Pulled. and then on, and then on let it is a a beard that's probably you know a half inch at most to three quarters of an inch and most customers when they see that they say you know that's that's basically beardless that's, in that opinion so that's like scurred yeah yeah scurred. and then and then fully on this obviously is it but what 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 happened to the market was uh, most of the trits were fully on when we got started obviously you, you don't i don't think you can name uh i don't think you can name a rye or a Dur- a durham that's uh that's onless okay uh, that mar- that market doesn't have the onless trade in it so sure our parent company <laughs> 20 years ago saw kind of the trend that to get into the livestock market, um, especially specifically the hay guys, um, they like to, to go to, or even some of the, the feed yards, they like to go to that soft dough stage where that mm-hmm. grain is developing at that stage, the ons were starting to, to lignify. And so they started seeing some correlations, uh, between sp- specifically the hay guys between ons uh, and the amount of uh, lumpy jaw infections 
so they would those little ons would poke the cattle in the mouth that were that were eating that that hay that had allowed that on to lignify and they were kind of getting in there and causing these sores in their mouth and, and you know getting lumpy jaw and you know you have cattle you don't like having to get them up and doctor them any more than any than the next guy no we don't um, <laughs> unless you got yeah. a cool hydraulic chute you just like to play with uh, <laughs> all the time you know but yeah no but i think that's a it's a key feature right I, again something sure. you can't you don't get just in a rye package right you yeah got to have that so that's that's rye. basically where that program was developed and it it was actually a uh a natural genetic mutation they found um and we and most of our stuff is onless or onletted mm. um and it's just because that's kind of how we've developed our products mm-hmm. um yeah, they're key. With, oh go ahead with that, though, we did see some uh, issues where the onless material that carried that trait, actually we were losing yield, tonnage, and it was there was some kind of linkage correlation between number of tillers um, with the ons versus the same variety that was fully oned. So okay. I had to go in there with a hypothetical genetic hammer and break those linkages, and, and I feel like we've done a really good job over the last – eight or 10 years of breaking those linkages and increasing our yields with the onless types. So what are the most popular varieties in the upper Midwest that are onless that cattle producers should for you should use? Sure. Sure. Well, the, so the, the upper Midwest is, uh, it's interesting because most of my stuff in the Midwest, it works are onless <laughs> because that customer is actually, uh, they're harvesting their, their product in the, uh, and the flag leaf stage, mm. but if you kind of head towards that, you know, uh, towards the uh, the guy, the cattle guy that's actually going to cut for hay, we have uh, we have a variety called Flex Seven Nineteen that's actually onless, and it's a uh, a really good winter hardy line. We grow that one all the way up into Canada, um, and it goes all you know as far south. And, and this is just to show you the adaptation of trits versus weed is. We grow that one all the way in Canada and all the way as far south as uh, as the Panhandle of Texas. Um, and then it, there's a couple of uh, there's a there's a couple of newer varieties um, that we're coming out with this this year or two. They're going to be truly onless. That are some really uber uh, winter hardy varieties. Maybe one thing that we haven't covered yet is the facultative varieties. Can you sure. explain what that is? Absolutely. So facultative basically just has to do with vernalization so the vernalization is the requirement or the cold shock that that plant has to go through through its early growing season and vegetative stages to move into reproductive stage to elongate uh, or bolt uh, however you want to term that um, to produce a stem and so on and so forth Uh, you know there's a lot of other crops that need vernalization i think you know, peaches and apples and things have to go through some length of vernalization to produce fruit. Um, and there's a ton of them that has to have some kind of cold shock, but it's just a physiological cold shock that it has to go through to to move into uh, allow it to move into physiological maturity. Now, what we found out was specifically with triticale um, is some of the varieties have low vernalization or zero vernalization requirements 
to move from the vegetative growth stage to the reproductive stage. And those types are called, uh, we, we basically, those are called facultative types. And a good example is the flex variety is a low or no vernalization requirement variety, but also has cold tolerance. And for years, everybody, and, and in wheat, it's probably true, but vernalization uh, um, genes and, and uh, cold tolerant genes and all those are probably more uh, closely linked in wheat, but we're finding out in, in triticale they're actually not. You can actually have a zero or no vernalization um, variety that can survive the, the most extreme cold environment in the U.S. Yeah, but do you know how cold it gets up here? <laughs> That's what we'll see here. <laughs> yeah. yep. Uh, maybe a one-off to that comment is, okay, so if it doesn't have to have the requirement to vernalize, to grow, how come it can't be a perennial and keep regrowing? Uh, because the growing points, once they get past the – once they get past the uh, surface level, which is you're going to you're going to end up cutting them Got as low to the ground as you can, you're going to terminate that. Okay, so it's terminate just a, that yeah. growing point. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of people that actually will grow the same variety uh, mm-hmm. as a fall planted. Flex is a good example. They'll plant the plant in let's say September, and they'll come off and you know graze it in the spring, chop it, and maybe make some hay out of it in April, and they'll turn right around in their field, you know, down the road, and they'll actually plant it in February, March if there's no snow cover, and they'll uh, and then they'll end up chopping that variety again um, at a diff, uh, you know, somewhere around 90 to 120 days um, after they plant it. It's an it's an interesting concept though. It's not it's not uh, it's pretty unique in small grains world to have that flexibility and, and capability. Could you ever move that growing point lower to the ground so that you don't have to replant it, so that you get multiple cuttings in the same year? Uh man, you're talking out of my realm of what I can do with breeding. And I just got a wish list of things I want you to breed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Can we make it a C four C four photosynthesis pathway too? While we're at it, just change yeah. everything. See that that's going to have to be like on fourth on the list. <laughs> I, the first on my list is always uh, I get this question: Can you make one that doesn't need water? Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's, that's, you're you're closer to not needing water than most plants, right? You know, <laughs> typically grown in the cooler time of year doesn't require as much uh, as much water because you don't lose as much evaporation and a very very drought tolerant crop. So you're getting you're close. Just say that like we're we're closer close. than corn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What do you we're want? Closer than we were last year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, this this has been a fascinating conversation, and uh, Racy really appreciate you joining us today. Any uh, any final words or anything that maybe we didn't get to um, in our in our kind of all over the board discussion about the history, the, the 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 process of breeding, the outcomes, and some of the exciting things that are coming out of your program? No, I I, uh, I I'm gonna I'm gonna put my shameless plug in here for Trudy Kaylee. I I I haven't done a lot of work. Uh, we have, I haven't spent a lot of time. We've been doing some work, but in the in the upper Midwest. But I've been spending much more of my of my time in the in the Midwest, and 
I am quite surprised when I drive through there, especially in the springtime when I really get out and start looking at things at how much ground is uh, is bare, mm. absolutely covered in nothing. And, uh, you know, I, I think with there are a lot of, a lot of growers and farmers out there could benefit from having some kind of cover on that. And especially for as many dairies as there is up in that area that, that, that with the quality of product that we have, that we could, uh, they could benefit from putting tree kale on some on some uh, bare ground like that, and still have the capability to plant their corn that they want. So, yeah. a cover crop and a forage. Yep, two for one. <clears throat> well, no, we very much appreciate uh, you taking time with us today, and uh, look forward to talking more in the future. All right, appreciate Been you. Great. Yep. Thanks, Racy. Take care. We'll have see a good you. Yeah. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, we hope you enjoyed another episode of the Roots and Ruminants podcast. Uh, let us know what you thought of it. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, all those social media things. And, uh, you know, if you ever have any questions, just give us a call. Um, we've got a toll-free number here at 888-498-7333. Be glad to hear from you. Thank you.